0: To the Giving Thought Podcast. This is the podcast from CAFS Think Tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever Rod Davis, uh, and this is the third in our mini-series on European philanthropy during and post-COVID-19. And in this one we are talking to Julie Broom, who is the director of Ariadne, uh, which is the European network for funders focusing on social change and human rights issues. Uh, and I had a cracking chat to to Julie. It was really interesting. We covered a, an enormous number amount of ground, um, talking uh, first about kind of what the what particularly constitutes social change, philanthropy, and kind of what kinds of funders are interested in that, whether it's uh, quite a sort of niche of uh, funders specifically interested or whether there was any sense that there was a kind of growing number of funders more broadly interested in it. Um, We talked about what some of the particular challenges of that are in terms of uh, funding sort of systemic change and social change. Um, That brought us on to discussing some of my favourite topics about how funders interact with movements uh, and kind of what the challenges of that are and how Ariadne as a network with its kind of experience of social change philanthropy was trying to help funders navigate some of those challenges as there is kind of an increasing focus on uh, on the interaction between funders and movements at the moment. Um, we talked about the sort of specific context around COVID-19 and um, the way in which that has obviously raised an enormous uh, amount of awareness of the inequality within societies around Europe and elsewhere and what funders are doing about that. Um, what some of the funders have done uh, already in response to to the immediate kind of practical challenges of COVID but also what they're doing kind of longer term to raise awareness um, about some of the potential issues that are being put in train now that might sort of play out in the longer term particularly kind of an interesting conversation about some of the potential issues around digital rights and, and data and, and the kind of encroachment of that on on human rights issues Um Uh, And then we talked about the particular question of the the role of infrastructure and kind of what the elements of infrastructure are, uh, what role infrastructure plays and what the value of it is um, in terms of both kind of bringing together organisations and sort of serving their needs to to help them connect and, and share knowledge and collaborate, but also in terms of pushing them further and taking a leadership role in terms of driving change on issues within the world of philanthropy. I should just say before we go into the interview, uh, just a warning that my audio is not up to the usual impeccable high standards. Uh, I sound slightly like I'm recording from a next door bathroom cubicle uh, down a phone um I'm not quite sure what happened I was doing the interview as normal via zoom but I think somehow I got my microphone settings wrong so incredibly I, I managed to be recording through my microphone but actually I think it was picking up from the laptop microphone Um so I just sound a little bit far away it's perfectly fine I think having been through it uh, and more importantly Julie's uh, audio sounds perfect so it's not really a problem but just so that you're aware that uh, I don't think that this is the the usual standard that I would aspire to so, without further ado, let's go into the conversation with Julie. Uh, I will be back at the end f- uh, for a bit of housekeeping and tidying up as usual. Okay, great. So, I'm here with Julie Broom. Hi, Julie. Hi, nice to be here. Uh- Great. Um, Well, thanks for being here. Um, And Julie is the director of Ariadne. So before we go into the conversation, maybe a good place to to start would be for you just to tell us a bit in your own words about what Ariadne is and and what the organization does and kind of how you came to to be working in the world of philanthropy.
1: Sure. Um, Ariadne is a network of European funders who support social change and human rights issues. Um, So we currently have about 160 foundations in the network spanning 22 countries. Um, Most of our members are from Europe. They're based in Europe. Um, Some of our members are based elsewhere, mostly in North America, but but funding in Europe. So we do require that there be some sort of nexus with Europe to to be involved in Ariadne. Um, But our members could be funding a whole range of issues Um, around human rights or progressive social change Um, and I I came to the network having actually been a member of the network before. Um, I was with the Sigurd Rousing Trust for seven years and during that time I kind of got to know Ariadne. At that time it was a very new network um, and I got to know it from the inside I suppose um, as a member taking part in uh, events and other things and then when the director position opened up I transitioned over so I've been involved with it for
0: some time now. Excellent Um, and and certainly in terms of that that kind of um, social change and and rights aspect um, are we talking about organisations for whom that is their sole focus or do you have members who are Perhaps you know well-known uh, grant makers for whom that's not the sort of thing people would associate with them, but they do have programs or parts of their work that, that touch on those. So they're members of the network.
1: I would say it's a mix. Um, most of our more prominent members probably do identify primarily as human rights funders or as social change funders, and that's really you know the core of what they do. But we do have members who. Um, might be funding a whole range of issues and human rights is just one aspect of what they're doing. Um, and we do try to to really bring in foundations who who are thinking about uh, you know, kind of social change issues, human rights issues, want to learn more and want a space where they can in- interface with other donors who are already a little bit more advanced in that work or are investing a little bit more In that field um, so that they can learn from them and develop their own programs a little bit more.
0: And and what would you say are some of the sort of unique features of being a social change or a rights-based funder as opposed to to a broader one? I mean, is it just understanding those cause areas or are there kind of differences of approach or structure that you see as well?
1: Um, I mean, I think the main difference really, you know, how we consider, you know, what is social change work when we're thinking about, you know, our membership criteria and, and you know, who, sh- who we should target to, to bring into the fold. I think it's really about, you know, not just funding particularly nice charitable causes where you're you're sort of addressing the, the situation of a particular individual who might be living in poverty or um, experiencing a particular crisis in their life, but really thinking about things on a little bit more of a systemic level. Um, You know, what are the kinds of policy and advocacy or policy changes that need to be made um, to really make the situation better for anyone who might find themselves in that kind of situation? Um, So I think that that's that's sort of the distinction between just general charitable giving and really taking a, a social change approach to funding. Um, Is really looking a little bit deeper at the root causes and how you can really shift the situation uh, in a broader, broader sense. Um, So I think, you know, from a from a funder perspective, it does require really a, a very long term approach. You can't come into it expecting to see results straight away. Um, You know, advocacy in particular, it can take a very long time um, to really see the kinds of political or legislative changes that you want to see that will really have the the, um, impact that you want to have. And and that could be very challenging. I mean, I think, you know, every, every foundation, every funder really wants to see the, the impact of their, their funding, they really want to see um, what comes out of what they're giving. And sometimes it can just take a very long time to really see that, but it doesn't make it any less important. In fact, I think it's, it's almost more important to really try to take that root cause systemic
0: approach. Absolutely. It it feels to me as though there's um, an increasing amount of focus on this, this idea of the extent to which you kind of shift from an idea of charity or philanthropy towards one that's more about justice or, or ensuring rights at a more fundamental level. I mean, do you think that, I mean, do you get that sense? And also, do you get any sense that there is more interest in or focus on the kind of funding that your network um, has been doing for a while at the moment?
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, I think I think there's been a growing interest over in this field, you know, in the European context in particular, since that's where I'm working over the last 10 years. I mean, we've seen really with austerity measures in so many countries, you know, that people really are starting to to shift their thinking and recognize that actually it's not enough to just sort of give to to schools or to hospitals that the problem is much much bigger than that and that actually we need a, need a much more concerted systemic approach to addressing some of these issues. And I think one thing that the you know this pandemic and um, the crisis that we find ourselves in now I mean it's really really highlighted the, the structural inequalities that exist in our society and this is a very unequal, society that we're living in. And many people have been affected much more negatively than others in this moment. And I think that's really come to the fore. People recognize that. And, and I think there's much more thinking now about how do we take that root causes approach? How do we start to really shift the society that we live in to create a world that is more one that we want to, to be living in right now. Um, so I, I do feel like the the interest um, from from everyone but particularly from foundations is is coming a little bit more um, into this area right now.
0: Yeah absolutely and I, I definitely want to to circle back in, in a minute to talk in, in a bit more detail about the specific context around what's happened during the pandemic and what might happen afterwards. Um, I just wanted to, to ask I mean one of the things I'm trying to do through this series is to give people a sense of what European philanthropy looks like at this moment in time and kind of what it means and, and what some of the differences or kind of common threads are. In, in terms of that, the the particular bit of philanthropy focused on rights and social change, I mean, what what's your kind of helicopter view of, of the landscape as it stands at the moment and, and perhaps kind of where it's come from over the last few decades? Um, and you know, you obviously work across Europe. Do you see significant differences between different countries in terms of their, their attitudes to, to that kind of philanthropy? Mm.
1: Yeah, I would say that there's definitely um different approaches across the continent. And there are countries where um that kind of charitable giving approach that I was um mentioning earlier. But that really has been the traditional approach to philanthropy. And I'm thinking here a little bit of Italy or Spain, um, maybe to a, a certain extent France. Um, you know that 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 has been the way that that philanthropy is done um, for a very very long time. And I think the idea of this more rights based challenging of Government and structures approaches is, is maybe a little bit more Anglo-Saxon in origin, um, and so there, you know, there has been a bit of a, a sort of difference in approach across different countries in Europe. But I think that that is starting to change. Again, you know, sort of the context that I was laying out, where societies are becoming a little bit more unequal in the recent past. That I, I think that. Maybe approaches are coming a little bit closer together. um, Looking across Europe, Um, but yes, I mean it has been it has been a sort of very different approaches coming out of of different countries. And then if you look at sort of Scandinavia, for example, I mean we have very few members who are there because you know there's always been this sort of social welfare state approach that I think the the idea of um, civil society and and philanthropy kind of challenging the state just didn't really exist in the same way um, because the state was the provider. Um, whereas, you know, I guess, you know, speaking from sort of an American perspective, that is the complete opposite, you know, civil society is really set up to, to kind of fill the gaps that, um, that the state is not providing. And so there's a much more not not necessarily adversarial, but sometimes adversarial relationship between civil society and government. And I think you, you see a little bit of that in the UK as well, you know, having a somewhat common history.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I agree. I mean, I think, as you say, some things, saying, I mean, the Scandinavian model is one. And you can see how that hasn't necessarily historically lent itself to the focus on that advocacy role of of civil society organizations and similarly those countries where the tradition is very much a charitable one particularly coming out of kind of religious giving as it would be in Spain and, and Italy again puts the focus on on the charitable rather than than some of that sort of social social change side and, and the UK and the US that definitely feels like one thing we do have in in common is recognizing that role for the civil society as as a kind of um, speaking truth to power or, or challenging power um, on on which note actually one of the things I wanted to ask you was it, it certainly seems to me in where I've been looking at it and, and speaking to other people about what's going on at the moment in in terms of um, government responses to uh to the pandemic and the, the crisis that that's caused and how they perceive the role of civil society that where they are paying any attention to civil society and in many cases they, they pretty much just aren't they they do seem to be seeing it in much more instrumentalist terms and putting an emphasis on the sort of direct service provision role of charities and as a result I wonder do you feel as though actually that the that separate advocacy role of charities there's a real danger that's going to get downplayed even more um, as governments kind of just see charities or civil society as something they can step in and help them with delivering money or delivering services.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a dynamic that's been happening for a while actually, and the pandemic has just maybe pushed it a little bit um, more forward, because I mean, certainly, you know, thinking about here in the UK where I'm based, um, you know, it has been the case for a number of years now that civil society has been asked to step in Basically, to fill the, the holes that have been left by cuts in public funding. And so, civil society has increasingly been used as a service provider. And it's been clear, I think, that that's, that's how government would like it to be. <laughs> you know, there, there's going to be much more public support for large organizations that are able to serve huge numbers of people as opposed to those that are going to do campaigning work for example like that's just not something i think that the government is very interested in supporting. So i i do i do think that there's a, a real risk of instrumentalization of organizations really across a number of countries in this this context. Um you know as governments say well you know we're we're having to deal with this crisis in in this way and we need organizations to respond, you know, on issues like mental health or food banks and and other um, kind of service provision things. Um, And and I think that that's actually why private philanthropy is really important right now um, because what we can do is really continue to support those organizations that do do the really essential campaigning and advocacy work that maybe doesn't seem like, the, a kind of first response in a crisis. But actually, when you start to look at the longer term, it is really important. Um, because I think, you know, we have a moment right now when a lot of things are up in the air. Um, there is so much collective rethinking of society, of the life that we live, you know, whether it's, you know, questions about working or education, um, you know, social equity, and then Obviously, with the protests that are happening, you know, really across the world, questions about racial equity and racial justice. We've got the climate crisis in the background. There's a lot of policy work that needs to be done, and those organizations really need the support to do it. So I I think that that's really where we, you know, as a collective um, community of of philanthropy and foundations, really need to be thinking about that. You know, it's not just the sort of first response, making sure that people are able to to eat or um, have shelter today. That's really important. But let's think about the longer term as well.
0: And and on that, I mean, we sort of said about the the dangers that come when governments are largely indifferent to to that role of civil society or kind of um, one step beyond that. Uh, actively uh, downplaying the advocacy role but I guess there are some places where I I would worry that beyond that the government is not only indifferent or there are negative unintended consequences of current policy changes but they are actively using the the crisis as a way to further um, reduce the space for civil society to operate or to have voice is is that something that you're finding a concern in in places that some of your members are working and, and what are they needing to do to challenge that?
1: Absolutely, that is, um, that is a big concern. And it's one of the first things that we started kind of speaking to our members about during this pandemic is that, um, you know, obviously in response, you know, many countries had to put in place some kind of emergency legislation Um, And that was very understandable, and that is accounted for in international human rights law that, you know, for reasons of public health and public order, you can, you know, take certain measures that you wouldn't take in ordinary times. I think the concern is, you know, those countries that have maybe um, used this opportunity to expand their powers um, for the longer term. So thinking about places like Hungary, for example, you know, where emergency legislation has basically meant that the government can effectively rule by, by decree. Um, and, you know, civil society and um, the government in Hungary have had a contentious relationship for some time now. So this, it's not really a particular surprise that, you know, a country would do that. And, and you know, Hungary is not the only one, but just using that as an example. Um, so I think that there's a lot of concern about um what what the long term picture looks like um, when you have this kind of legislation passed very quickly, you know, with a populace that you know, in a moment of fear and concern, is quite willing to to cede some of their rights in there. And I think kind of related to that is this question of um, a surveillance state that is emerging a little bit because. Again, you know there's a lot of data collection happening right now and people being encouraged to use various apps and things like that um, all you know with the intention of helping to fight this pandemic um, but it also raises all of these questions about how is this data being used who has access to it um, and I think the the kind of partnership between governments and big tech corporations right now is you know a little bit Questionable. There's already been, you know, a lot of questions even before this pandemic about how big companies were using our data, um, how they were using that for their own benefit, essentially. And and when you look at some how, you know, some companies have made a huge amount of money out of this uh, pandemic when others are losing their jobs and their livelihoods. You know, it just really it, it raises a lot of red flags. So I think. You know, we're, we're really kind of working with our members to first to just sort of flag some of these issues. I mean, many of them are aware of them already, but to create spaces where they can learn from one another about how they they can respond to this, um, what they can do. And, and and I think it's just, you know, a lot of awareness raising about what's happening and making sure that those advocacy organizations, those campaigning organizations that are on the front lines in some of these places really have the support that they need um, in order to continue to monitor what's happening, um, to push back what's happening and to really raise uh, understanding and awareness among the wider public, um, because you you really need a a large group of people pushing back against some of these, these measures.
0: It's fascinating to hear that that you're working on that and your members are definitely going to be my next question. I think in terms of that um, governmental clampdown, um, you can certainly see how that sort of exacerbates existing problems with things like the freedom of assembly and kind of physical space. But increasingly, you know, I definitely think that some of those issues around who has control and can put constraints on sort of digital public space are are enormous. And there are things happening at enormous pace at the moment through the sort of necessity um, of dealing with the public health side of the, the the COVID crisis, that I do worry will be very difficult to to reverse if we don't raise awareness of them of them now. So it's really good to hear that you're you're working on that. And and certainly when you're saying at the end there about the work that you're doing to sort of help your members advocate and be informed on that, it kind of brings me around to to another particular thing I wanted to ask, which is about the specific role of infrastructure within the philanthropy world. Um, Generally, but also I think particularly at this moment in time, it feels to me as though another thing that the the pandemic has done is to make certainly those of us in the philanthropy world and perhaps more broadly, recognise the value of infrastructure, which can sometimes I think seem like a bit of a luxury, but actually when the crisis hits, all of a sudden you realise quite how valuable uh, some of these elements that you've put in place are. Do you get a sense that people do have a renewed appreciation of the importance of infrastructure? And, and kind of what do you think the, the elements of, of infrastructure that we need are?
1: I certainly hope they have a renewed appreciation for infrastructure in this moment. Um, we've been doing a lot to uh, to try to show our value in, in this pandemic time. Um, I, I do think that there, there is a greater recognition of it. Um, you know, I think, as I said earlier, you know, this, this moment has just shown how big the problem is, um, the large scale of the issues. And I think it's clear that there's no single foundation can really go out and, and solve the problem right now. I mean, everyone can do their little part, but if, we, if we're going to really use this moment to think about what is the future that we want? You know, what is it that we want to achieve? That actually that really requires philanthropy to come together, not necessarily to have like a very detailed shared vision, but a but a broader shared vision of, you know, what is the direction of travel here? And to start to exchange information and and think about how we can work together as a community right now. And I think infrastructure basically provides that. And we are set up to enable those kinds of um, cross-foundation conversations to enable the kind of cooperation and collaboration that's needed in a crisis like this. And you know, we're here, <laughs> this, is, this is what we do. And I think that foundations are starting to turn more to the networks that they're a part of to help get the information that they need to think about how they can respond and also just to, to find that solidarity with other foundations, to think about, you know, how how are you responding? What can I learn from what you're doing? Is there something we can do together right now that would be more effective than what we could do on our own as a, a small trust or foundation? Um, and I think that all of that is is really critical in this moment. Um, we've certainly found that, you know, it, webinars and things that we've done have been very well attended. And I think I think that it's because people are looking for answers. You know, they're they're looking for information, especially at this time when everyone is working largely from home. We don't have those same kind of physical connections anymore, and it's you know to try to address a, a massive crisis like the one we're experiencing now. When you're sort of in the for the privacy of your own home, is it's hard. And so having that those kind of spaces where you come together with colleagues, where you can build those connections and have those exchanges and really think about, okay, what, what does the future look like for us and how can we build that together? I think that's just so important right now
0: agreed and certainly it's having conversations like this for the podcast is an absolute lifeline for me in terms of being able to to, to sort of keep in touch and and as you say kind of get outside the fact that you're working in the spare room whilst trying to get your head around these massive global issues sometimes um on one one interesting thing that's come up in in other conversations i've had recently about infrastructure is is the question of whether there's been any sort of shift over the last few years away from the idea that the role of infrastructure bodies, particularly those who have members, is to sort of listen to and reflect the views of their members and represent them towards whether there is more of an active role in in sort of uh, leadership or even challenging members to go further than they otherwise might. um, And on issues particularly where having sort of a collective approach is particularly important, like things you mentioned, the climate crisis that seems like a, a huge um, a kind of role that infrastructure bodies could play. What's what's your sort of take? How do you see Ariadne's role in, in relation to, to its members?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've always tried to strike a balance between those two things. Um, so I think, you know, to a certain extent, obviously we do need to be listening to members and to understand where their interests are, what they're focused on right now so that we can help support them to do their work better. But I do think it's also very important that we play a, a thought leadership role in helping identify for the broader membership what some of the issues might be that they're missing. Um, and and often there are people within the, the membership, within the network who are working on some of those issues or are thinking about some of these things. So the, you know, it's really a matter of bringing those people to prominence and to attention and giving them the space and the platform to, to share with some of their colleagues you know, what they're doing and why, and why this is an important thing that others need to be paying attention to. Um, and, you know, certainly that is something that we have done with climate crisis. Um, you know, over the past couple of years, we've been talking more and more about climate justice and really bringing in those members who have been very deep in this work for a long time, um, so that they can really share with others what they're doing. And I I think that that's an important part of our curation role, if you will um, of really understanding you know where where is the future <laughs> going and who are the people that are already thinking about some of those things that we can help to try to push that forward a little bit um, you know similarly right now we're having um, conversations like that around racial justice um, and support for the racial justice movement. you know we do have members that have been supporting this for movement for a very long time. And they felt um, very alone in doing that, you know, because so many of their peers did not necessarily prioritize it or, or see it as, um, you know, sort of a critical issue right now. And, and certainly that's changed within the last few weeks. um, And we're trying to help provide a platform for those foundations to really speak a little bit more and to, to help show other foundations that there is a way of being responsive and of, you know, helping to support these groups right now. Um, so I, yeah, I think that it is a very important in these moments when everything is dynamic, everything is changing, that infrastructure can really sort of help shape those spaces, um, to guide Uh, foundations towards the, you know, the solutions and the issues of the day. And I, I see it as kind of leading from behind in a sense of, you know, I don't necessarily have all the answers and my, you know, my team doesn't have all the answers, but within the network, there are a lot of answers actually. And so we can help sort of elevate what some of those solutions might be from among the foundations that are in the network.
0: Yeah, it's fa- I mean, it's fascinating to hear, and, and certainly what you were saying there about um, absolutely the kind of the focus on racial justice issues. Certainly, I mean, the, the huge acceleration in prominence those have had in the last few weeks, and um, definitely brought me on to, to something I wanted to ask you, particularly given your focus on um, on kind of social change philanthropy, which is um what have you uh, noticed in sort of questions around the relationship between funders and social movements that might might be sort of not the traditional recipients of philanthropic funding because it 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 feels like I'm sure in your world this is not a new problem it's you know that relationship has, has long been there and people have been dealing with it but for a lot of foundations all of a sudden they're seeing networks come to prominence as the main agents of lots of different elements of social change i mean black lives matter obviously but also organizations like extinction rebellion and others and they those dynamics i think do bring some particular challenges with them is that an area in which you have members who have experience of, of navigating that that they've been able to share yes
1: definitely. this has been a conversation within our network for uh, you know, quite a number of years now is you know what is the appropriate relationship between philanthropy and social movements, um, and you know, it, it there isn't a simple answer to the question. Um, I think you know many of those foundations that do work very effectively with social movements are willing to be led by those movements, and that's a very important difference from traditional philanthropy. Um, that, you know, with, with move, part of why movements are movements and not professional NGOs is because, you know, they really, they, they want to be non-hierarchical. They want, um, to be really close to the grassroots and responsive to what's happening in different communities and, and very close to the ground. And that's something that, um, you know, it, it isn't a traditional model for, for philanthropic organizations. And I think that, you know, it involves ceding a certain amount of power to those movements to kind of determine what works for them, um, and what's best for them. Um, and, and some foundations just, you know, find that difficult to do for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think, there you know there there is a lot of interest in it and you know a lot of i think it connects a bit to to some of these conversations that have been happening around shifting the power in philanthropy more generally you know how to make the the processes of of foundations more inclusive particularly more inclusive of those who are going to benefit from the funding so some have gone in the direction of being very participatory in their actual Grant making process, you know, having other people make decisions about grants. You know, others, and and I think this is actually really important, it have started to think about how, how can they bring people into the staff and the, the board and the leadership of foundations that actually come from some of these communities that are being supported, so that actually the whole institution becomes a little bit more. Inclusive and representative um, of of the issues, as opposed to you know one group of people giving to another group of people. Um, but that's you know it takes it takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of time um, and commitment, and it doesn't you know it's not something that you can just kind of change overnight. It needs to be done really thoughtfully. But you know there's a lot of of members within our network who have been giving this a lot of thought um, and taking. Steps to to try to rectify that balance, I guess, and and not be more conscious about the power that they have, and think about how they can share that, and how they can make the whole funding process a little bit more equitable than perhaps it's been in the past. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that you know some some movements don't really want philanthropic funding. Um, it, their whole ethos is really about support from the community. So, they they want the individual donations um, from the people who are engaged, and that's really what sustains them. And for that, for some of them, um, you know, funding from a big foundation would feel quite constricting um, in a way that they, that they just don't want. So, I think that's also sometimes a tricky thing for foundations to recognize is that actually, maybe this this isn't the right thing for us to be supporting because our money isn't really wanted in this this space um, so I think that's always a bit of a surprise <laughs> for some foundations who are used to being you know ask for money all the time to suddenly be told we you don't want your money um, but I, yeah, I think that that sort of developing those kind of communications between the movements and the foundations and helping each understand you know, how, what kind of relationship they could and should have um, and how that can be done in a way that's not uncomfortable for either party is important and, and a bit messy, honestly. Um, but I think some of our members are, are working through it. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's absolutely—it's one of my favourite topics, so I, I could talk about this all day. <laughs> um, there, there were two two questions I really want to ask actually off, off the back of that that I'd been scribbling notes. And what, the first is around the the approach from funders, and you mentioned there about some of them taking more participatory approaches, and that seems like that's sort of towards one end of of the spectrum. And maybe we shouldn't expect you know all funders to shift towards that in such a short space of time. But it does feel as though there's a more pragmatic conversation happening quite widely about moving away from unrestricted uh, from restricted or programmatic funding to more kind of unrestricted funding or trust-based funding relationships, simply perhaps to get money out of the door in the short term. So my first question was, do you, do you see that happening and do you think it has relevance to the, the kind of wider issues you're thinking about in terms of funding movements, if that becomes more of a norm? And then the second part of the question was, and um, from the point of view of the movements themselves, you said some of them, you know, don't actually want philanthropic funding because of the dangers, perhaps, of the power imbalance, uh, distorting what they do, or movement capture happening. Do you do you ever see from those those movements a recognition that the, their their own models and the sort of non hierarchical nature of them and the networked approach have their own weaknesses, and that actually, apart from the money, put the money to one side for a minute, there might be benefits to working with organizations that have a bit more structure or can provide some some infrastructure for them to help them address some of those weaknesses
1: those are two very big questions (laughs) 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 Um, (laughs) so the the first question with the sort of unrestricted funding i mean i think it's so essential and honestly some days i can't believe we're even still having this conversation um because I, I can't tell you how many years I've sat in donor meetings where people have talked about the value of core support and flexible, unrestricted funding. And yet somehow there still seems to be so many foundations that aren't doing it. Um at least that's what I hear from some of the civil society organizations that I'm in contact with, um, who indicate that they really struggle to get that kind of funding. Um and I mean, to me, it's just clearly how we should be supporting civil society. Um, They, you know, that is what they need in order to play the kind of nimble, responsive role that we're expecting them to play. Um, So, yes, I absolutely think it is connected in that, I mean, if we, if we really think about supporting civil society. In a non-instrumentalist way, um, you know, to really play an active role, then that that is what we should be doing anyway, and that is maybe the first step in starting to seed power a little bit, you know, tiny little bit um, is just to you know put the organizations themselves in the driver's seat about you know how they're going to spend their money what they're going to prioritize throughout the year because it's likely going to shift you know so you can write your proposal uh you know in december and by march you can be in a pandemic and you never saw that coming so they you know they need that kind of um, ability to to pivot and to address whatever might come up um and i and i do think maybe you know moving from that point of giving quite flexible funding to then start To think about moving to a a more flexible and participatory process is probably a much easier step than if you were to go from a very long frame-based project funding approach um, to suddenly shifting to um, you know we're going to be totally inclusive in all of our processes. Um, But yeah, I think I think that is an important uh, an important conversation. That well, I. I'm slightly baffled why we still have to have it. Um, I think it's important to continue to have it (laughs) um, and and to ensure that as many foundations as possible move in that direction. And I I do think, um, you know, certainly among our membership, um, you know, given that they're very human rights oriented, maybe our membership is a little bit different, but I I do think many of them do give core support anyway. Um, And certainly in response to, Covid and the pandemic, there was a real loosening of you know all kinds of restrictions and allowing people to do what they needed to do. And I think we we saw that happen across foundations that maybe traditionally wouldn't necessarily have have been big core supporters. Um, so I think that that's a very positive movement, and I think and I hope that it's something that we can retain as we return to whatever normalcy might be. Um, you know, I think there, ha- there have been some positive things to come out of the past few months. And um I I really hope that we don't lose those um, as we, you know, start to kind of take a longer term approach. The question on the movements, um, that's a tricky one for me to answer. But you know, I think yes, I mean, certainly. There there are weaknesses inherent in, in taking this very flat, non-hierarchical approach. Um, but I think I think it's an important learning, maybe for all of us. I mean, maybe there's there is some kind of balance in the end between um the kind of professional NGO model that has emerged over the past few decades, um, where I think the focus has been very much on, you know, civil society organizations learning from business and from the corporate sector. And, you know, how can we bring in these kind of like management tools and frameworks and the, you know, which has really sort of taken the, the NGO sector further and further away from the communities that it's trying to serve. Right. So I mean, I think one of the things that sort of came to light when we all started talking about the, you know, the closing space for civil society and the threats to civil society, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, was this sudden recognition that actually in many parts of the world, those organizations that were coming under threat from, from governments, actually had very little public support because the public didn't really necessarily know them that well or relate to them that much or feel particularly invested in them, Um, which is somewhat ironic because, you know, civil society is supposed to be representing the broader public and and the people. Um, And so I think that that moment of disconnect was a little bit of a, a wake up call that actually maybe in some cases this professionalization has, has had negative effects or gone a little bit too far. So I see the, the kind of social movements as almost a kind of backlash against that of, you know, being much more, um, populist and probably both the positive and the negative <laughs> senses of that term, um, being, you know, much more, um, grassroots and of the people. And then I think the desire to sustain that does sometimes mean that there isn't the same kind of decision making structures that facilitate a kind of um long term sustainable movement um but i i think I think it's important you know for us to to try to learn from what they're doing and to see you know what where where is the balance here um how can we help support these movements in a way that enables them to develop but not push them to become what we we've already done um with kind of these very organized civil society organizations and i and i don't mean to say that the civil society organizations don't have an important role to play because i think that they they do i mean there's professionalized staff within those organizations do excellent Work um, and you know they've spent years kind of refining <laughs> their strategies in terms of you know legal cases and policy work and all of those things are super important. Um, but I think you know that the social movements fulfill maybe a slightly different role um, in mobilizing the public and and really swaying public opinion and. So ideally you'd sort of like to see some kind of relationship between
0: the two oh yeah i'd, I'd absolutely agree and i certainly with my question didn't want to su- suggest that we needed to to sort of uh claim that the non-hierarchical approaches or social movements were, were somehow flawed as an approach i guess the thing that i find interesting is that it it tends to be too much of a, a binary thing of either you need you know structure and formalization as you say things that largely governance models taken from the business sector or you have people re- recognizing the power of social movements and saying oh let's do that whereas actually i think the fascinating conversation is how do you meet in the middle and and take the strengths of both of them and minimize the weaknesses of them and that seems to me the really productive area over the next few years is to try and make those relationships work as effectively as possible so i just i just think it's a fascinating area to to be in
1: i i remember um, just a small little anecdote i when i was i was funding some organizations in Brazil. Uh, this was probably was it 2013 or so, maybe when um, there was a big social protest movement that was happening in Brazil. And one of the our, our grantees said, "Yeah, we were we were sitting in the office and um, we realized like it was so loud outside, and we were getting really annoyed that it was really loud outside because we were trying to do our work. And then we realized like." there were protests happening outside and that actually we should be out there with them <laughs> as opposed to sitting in here complaining about the fact that they're loud. And I think, you know, that really does kind of sum it up. <laughs> You're, you find yourself in these, these weird situations of like, well, we have all this professional work to do, but actually the the real movement is happening outside of our window and we have to find a way to connect with that.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great example. And I, and I think something that will really resonate with a lot of people who you know, have chosen to work in the more formalised foundational philanthropy world, precisely because, you know, they really care about social issues, but are seeing lots of things happening at the moment in more kind of grassroots ways and wondering how that relates to to that original motivation they had. And as you say, precisely feeling as though they're sitting in a room listening to protests happen outside of things is a, is a great kind of image that brings that home um i'm aware that i'm in danger of, of keeping you all together too long uh, and i don't want to do that um so you know i'd like to say first of all thanks ever so much for finding some time to come on the podcast um i just wanted to give you an opportunity um you know before we we sign off and um, if there's any particular things that you're working on at ariadne that you'd like to to kind of direct people's attention to or just some sort of more broadly issues that you know you want to leave people with as a final thought
1: sure um I mean, maybe just something to flag that um, we do every year, but I think this year it has um, sort of particular significance, is that we we do an annual forecast of what does the coming year hold for European philanthropy, um, and that's available on our website. Um, our 2020 forecast came out in March, and um, you know, we did not, unfortunately, predict a global pandemic I'm sorry to say no but we we have been doing a um a blog series that's also available on our website looking at some of the issues that were raised in our forecast and connecting them to covid and um looking a little bit at you know how things have changed as as a result of the pandemic so we've had um I think we've had five uh blogs so far on those topics ranging from um you know poverty to racism um various other things so i would encourage you to to take a look at that because i hope that it's helpful just in um helping people think about some of the bigger issues that are happening right now and getting a sense of how different foundations are responding to them
0: excellent yeah and i'll put links to to those in the show notes certainly so people can can get hold of those um if they want to and yeah, and i'd certainly add a recommendation for the forecast which i was finding you know, a really uh, interesting read and i'm certainly very much minded about thinking about, about what's next in <laughs> and civil society um i just want to say again thanks ever so much julie for coming on the podcast and certainly you know if the opportunity's there further down the line i'd uh, love to twist your arm and get you back on if we can kind of pick up on some of these conversations because i could definitely have kept talking for hours about, <laughs> about that, some of this stuff great well thank you so much Excellent it was a pleasure Okay. Well, my thanks again to Julie for coming on the podcast. It was great to have a chance to chat to her and I thought it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to various things we talked about. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, uh, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at underscore H underscore davis. Or if you like stuff that's more about kind of uh, academic writing about philanthropy and particularly history, then uh, check out at for Literacy, which is my other secret uh, Twitter feed that I man. Um, if you've got ideas for people that I could talk to on the podcast or issues we could cover, do join drop us a line at at givingthoughtatcafonline.org otherwise uh, like subscribe tell all your friends about it leave us a nice review wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next time bye